You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Panel discussion, Objectivism and Ancient Greek Philosophy, with Robert Mayhew, Gregory Salmieri, and Aaron Smith. All right, hello, I'm uh, Robert Mayhew. I teach philosophy at Seton Hall University. Uh, my major area of research is ancient philosophy, of course, um, uh, Aristotle mostly, and lately I've been doing uh, the, the, the students and and early uh, peripatetics, the ones who followed Aristotle in the Lyceum, all of that stuff is, is uh, fragments. Uh, well, not all of it, but pretty much. Um, my dissertation was um, on uh, Aristotle's, it, it was Politics, Book 2, Chapter 5, it was a commentary, which is Aristotle's criticism of Plato's Republic, the, the politics part of it. Um, one of the things, since I'll be talking about Aristotle tomorrow, and, uh, you know, it's Aristotle, Aristotle, Aristotle has been my emphasis. I do want to mention one aspect that really got me interested in ancient philosophy and which I found fascinating were the pre-Socratics who can come across as very weird, strange, you know, everything is water. But what I really like about the, the pre-Socratics is you see these early first attempts to break away from the Olympian religion. And the Olympian religion, you know, Zeus and all that, it was pretty, by modern standards of religion, it was not that bad. It was pretty secular. You can find the afterlife on a map. It's to the west. You know, it's, it's fairly, relatively this worldly. You know, the gods live on a mountain, which you can point to. Um, yes, he climbed it. Uh, apparently, in, the, in antiquity, you would be killed for that uh, by the gods. But one of the, so what I really... Um, since we're broader than just Aristotle, we're talking about ancient philosophy. One of, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting and important from the very beginning. Uh, and it's, they didn't have a really good conception of philosophy. They thought of themselves as, as you know, it was wisdom. You're trying to find out information. You're trying to gain knowledge, uh, deep knowledge about the world. And so it took the form of, yeah, we need arguments for the positions we're going to hold. And of course, people who believe in Zeus and stuff like that, they don't. They're, they're believing it because their fathers believed it and you know, everyone in their community believes it. Uh, so um, what you see is the earliest kind of philosophy. There's no distinction between what we would call philosophy and the special sciences. So it could involve um, something that is a pretty good argument, like Xenophanes' argument against anthropomorphic gods. He, he has an argument as to why uh, you shouldn't believe in the gods that look like human beings. And it's a good argument. But you also have Thales, for example, um, predicting an eclipse. Now, that is not what philosophers do uh, nowadays. But it's still, it was part of the same movement away from um, accepting the belief of the, um, the beliefs in the gods and the fact that they control. Uh, I mean, the standard view was the gods are responsible for the harmony in the world, the fact that crops grow at a certain time and you can placate the gods, hopefully, and, and they'll keep everything orderly. But the gods are also responsible for weird stuff that happens. Poseidon is the god responsible for earthquakes. Helios, or Zeus, is the guy who um, causes an eclipse to, to occur. And if an eclipse happens, it's not just some natural phenomenon. It means the gods are angry and they want you to stop or something like that. And same with plagues and all that. So... I find it fascinating that these early philosophers, we don't have a lot, well, some fragment, some of the figures we have a lot of fragments of, but they're groping at an attempt to understand the world in a more rational way, and I find that a very interesting part of, of, the, of ancient philosophy, and it's a significant one. 
Well, I'm Aaron Smith. I'm an instructor and fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. So I'm not an academic. Uh, my background is in ancient Greek philosophy as well. So I did my PhD in philosophy, specializing in uh, Aristotle predominantly, though I think I know more about Plato than I do about Aristotle. Nonetheless, I wrote my dissertation on Aristotle, um, on his thoughts about abstraction. Um, and what do I, what do I want to say? Um, what fascinated me, I went into ancient philosophy because I, there wasn't anyone I could study Iron Rand with. Um, but the, when I started looking into the Greeks, I fell in love with Greek philosophy. Like you said, the pre-Socratics, um, Plato, you know, Plato in, uh, in objectivism, Plato's the kind of the, the, in effect, the, kind of the bad guy in effect in many cases in terms of the, his fundamental principles and what they amount to in human life. So I love reading Plato. I teach a lot of Plato. I think you can learn from Plato. It's one of the most enjoyable philosophers to read, uh, although some, some of it's very quite difficult and some of it is it's both drama, it's both humor, and he's on to some deep issues. Uh, and one of the things that Ayn Rand said about Plato, and I hope I get this right, said something like, Plato formulated most of philosophy's fundamental questions, or his basic questions, and doubts. So there was a respect in which it's, he's identifying really important fundamental questions that are interrelated, that form of the basic subject of philosophy. I think of him as the discoverer of philosophy. Um, as an integrated subject of fundamental issues that you, you that you can integrate into a system, like as sometimes you read in objectivism, it's from metaphysics to sex. There's an integrated perspective, and Plato actually has that view. Everything from human nature to uh, what makes us who we are, how we relate to the world, the nature of the world, uh, how our how reason functions, and, and it the whole relation to the uh, senses and read the whole view. And in terms of a political theory, he's got everything sort of an integrated perspective. And so when philosophy is starting to develop in Athens as the center of where philosophy is now practiced uh, or was practiced then in what is the fifth, fourth century uh, BC, um, you get the development of systematic philosophy, uh, starting with Plato and then Plato's uh, student, Aristotle, and you get the formation of all the major Greek schools, the ones that come after Aristotle, but they're all formed in that period. So Stoicism, Epicureanism, if you've heard of these, some of these people, some of these people, are, well, I won't mention all of them because they're, they're less known, but all the major Greek schools of philosophy were formed during that period. So uh, this Zeno started teaching and forming the school of uh, Stoicism, this is around 300 BC. Uh, so, you know, maybe 20 years after Aristotle's death. Um, and That's a different Zeno from the one who thought nothing could start. That's right. So Zeno of Elias, the, yeah, yeah, the guy who can't cross a room. Uh, Zeno of Citium is the founder of Stoicism. But, um, and then you had the period of what they call Hellenistic philosophy. This is kind of coming, uh, this is, where, well, how would you? 323. Three, three, oh, yeah, 323, right. Death of Alexander. Um, yeah, on into the Roman uh, imperial period. Um, but uh, it has a long history and a long development, which I found fascinating to follow. So I've taught like Hellenistic philosophy, like the Stoics and the Epicureans, and they're really interesting. Especially you listen to, you start reading some of their work in epistemology, 
Because one, one thing is interesting, sorry, I'm babbling now, but one thing is interesting about all the Hellenistic schools is they all dropped Plato's theory of forms. Uh, and so they all have there's some way in which we have to start to form concepts on some empirical basis, like you start tabula rasa, you experience the world in certain ways, the mind, let's say, does things or perceives or gets things in a certain kind of way. And, um, but there's a sense in which the whole period of Hellenistic philosophy in the schools, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the various kinds of skeptics and so on, um, there's a very different character to that philosophy than I think the, the more system-building periods of the Plato and Aristotle in terms of what they thought they were moving toward and what the goals of philosophy were, um, even if they were to some extent systematic. Uh, so I just fell in love with the whole period of philosophy and stuck with it. Um, Let me, uh, I'll similarly say some of my interests and backgrounds and a little bit about what I think is important about Greek philosophy. But I realized we didn't tell you guys like what we're doing here. We didn't have any kind of introduction to the panel or why we're having this panel. So let me give a little bit of broader context first. So we're, we're in Athens, uh, which is awesome. We're, we're largely here because, you know, Nikos is here and said let's have a conference in Athens. But we were so excited to do it and be part of it because Athens is the birthplace of philosophy or at least it's nurturing ground. It's where all the great Greek philosophy or so much of it happened. It's where uh, Aristotle and Plato walked. Plato, who uh, I agree with Aaron, is like the founder of philosophy as a systematic discipline. Um, Aristotle, who's um, Ayn Rand's favorite philosopher and mine, and, and all three of us are, uh, are Aristotle scholars by background, uh, all wrote dissertations on Aristotle and have written on him. Uh, and he's, of course, Ayn Rand's favorite philosopher. Uh, so what we're doing tomorrow is we're going to some of these philosophical sites. We're going to Aristotle's school. And Robert and I are going to give talks there, and that's awesome, and we're excited mm -hmm. to do it because we're here in Athens. But we also realize, well, all the talks today up till now are about general issues in philosophy, nothing in particular about Greek philosophy. And tomorrow we're having this stuff on Greek philosophy, and we should do something to kind of connect them. And so that's what the focus of this panel is. I'm going to say a little bit about my own thoughts on Greek philosophy and history with it, and... By the time I finish doing that, when we take into account what Robert said and Aaron said, we've thrown out all kinds of interesting stuff and interesting questions. You might want to know about what various people thought about sex or metaphysics from, uh, from Aaron. And Plato has really cool and interesting things to say about it. Quite troubling, actually, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's lots of things about the Epicureans and Stoics. You, some people here will have had you know, experience with these philosophers before. You could just ask about particular people. Uh, we're leaving it. To, to you guys to raise questions and we'll just kind of react, but we're hoping these first few minutes of setting things up will, will um, seed the ground with material for questions. So, who cares? Like, why, why do all philosophers have this thing for the Greeks? I mean, they somehow were in the same field as us a long time ago, but like people were doing philosophy in other places too. It turns out India and China, some of it before. Like, well, what's so special about Greek philosophy? Uh, why do all philosophers learn at least something about them? Why do we think everyone should know some Plato and Aristotle? What, what's central about this? Well, philosophy is in a sense timeless. We're asking questions that could be asked by anyone at any time and place, that are questions about 
human nature as such, and the universe as such, and our place in the universe as such, and not just all of philosophy, but all of science, all of higher learning, in the whole world everywhere today, is descended from a project of discussion, a project of reflection that started here, where we're standing, or at least coalesced here. If you get a college degree in Beijing or Mumbai or Cairo or whatever place it is, Texas, um, in any field, the whole idea that there are different fields and you would go to different places and different people to learn about different fields. The idea of disciplines, the idea that there are definitions and that they're important, that you can organize things based on them. The idea that knowledge is structure where there are principles and then other things that are explained in terms of the principles. All of that, everything about how every person on earth who fancies themselves educated anyway thinks about knowledge and its structure, it all comes out of an intellectual project that was started here. And if you want to think about or understand human knowledge and the questions of it, the people who shape that project are just someone you can't avoid thinking about. You can't avoid them coming up. If they were right about something, it has long trails in how we all think. And what they were wrong about has long trails in what we all think. It's not just Robert mentioned um, there being fuzzy borderlines between philosophy and, and science, and that's true, but it, it's because you start off with the project of just trying to know things, trying to figure out how you know things, and later on you start figuring out how to carve up the things, carve up the work of knowing into different departments. But the first place where people got far enough into that project and thought about it enough this way to start making those distinctions, how do we organize knowledge? What are the different branches? was here, or rather, if it happened anywhere else earlier, it didn't last there. But what happened here got passed on through the Roman Empire, through the Arab Muslim scholars, through the Christian scholars, to the universities of Europe that conquered the world, to, and, and is our own intellectual heritage. Whoever you are anywhere in the world, it came from what was going on here, or at least that's part of the lineage. And so that's why Greek philosophy is seen as so important. And I just want to say a few things about what it is that happened here in Athens. Why Athens? Because philosophy didn't start in Athens. Uh, Robert mentioned Thales. He lived in like what's Turkey now. I mean, it was Greek speaking. Uh, it was Greek colonies, trading colonies in um, in Miletus. And now present day two part of Turkey, right? I think Miletus. Yeah, Miletus and Colophon and, and Asia Minor. The other early people we think of as some of the first philosophers, uh, people like this guy Thales, who might have thought everything was water, or might have predicted an eclipse, sounds kind of like a scientist, sounds all wet. But they belong to a tradition you might call, I like to call them the Fusikoi, the nature guys, the naturalists, people who were trying to understand natural phenomena and the natural world in a way that didn't rely on the gods, or at least not in the old way, that had arguments and and they seem to have been trying to come up with some big picture story about what unites or binds all the natural processes together, what everything is made of or comes from, or at least that's how Aristotle, looking back at them, interprets them. And the, all of these guys, a lot of people were doing it, they were doing it in mostly Asia. 
One of them, Anaxagoras, comes to Athens. We'll talk about why a little bit later. But it's going on all over the place. There are, there are two other traditions that are going on simultaneous to this that I think are really significant. And they're really significant because they're part of this fusion that happens in Plato that I think gives birth to philosophy as a discipline. Math, geometry. What does geometry mean if you just think about the words? Geo is earth, metri is measuring. It's surveying, it's measuring the land. And it starts in Egypt and in other places as surveying. How do you measure the land? How do you figure out how much property you have and so forth? And there are people in different parts of the world doing it. But what some of the Greeks start doing with geometry is a little bit different. They start developing something like proof systems. That's an interesting thing to do. We had like the ratios that are the Pythagorean ratios. Other cultures knew that, other people knew that. What you get is like trying to describe what's going on with those ratios more abstractly, that you don't just have a set of memorized proportions that triangle sides could have to one another, but a formula for how it'll work with all right triangles. And then that's not enough. You're not satisfied with the formula. You want to prove that that formula has to hold for all right triangles, starting from some more basic facts about triangles. It's not quite clear where this interest in doing this started from. It's pretty clear it didn't start in Athens, but it was going on, moving on from just surveying the land to trying to systematize the kinds of knowledge that we have of shapes and to do it more and more abstractly. So we have in Asia Minor these Fusakoi trying to come up with abstract unitary explanations of natural phenomena. Not just knowing and figuring out how to predict when the things will flood, although they are doing that, but trying to see something more general that stands behind that. Not just knowing how to measure the land, but trying to say something more general about quantitative relationships and having the, fact, the idea that there may be deeper things to know about quantitative relationships, and if we can know them, we could see why these ratios hold that we're finding around. That was going on in a couple of places. There seems to have been some of it in Asia Minor. Thales seemed to have been interested in some of this stuff. The Pythagoreans in Italy, uh, also Greek-speaking groups mostly in Italy, were interested in this. It's hard to know much about the Pythagoreans because they were like a secret society kind of cult, basically. And it's not even clear when they got interested in math. They're early on, they're very interested in what you should eat and things like this. But some of them at some point got really interested in mathematics and were doing these kind of proofs. And some of them came to Athens and brought some of this mathematical knowledge to Athens. And there's another group of people that also almost none of them come from Athens. They come from all the cities, Greek-speaking cities around, that are the sophists. These are people who had a new career that no one seemed to have before, and that was controversial. Some of them denied that this was their career. Um, going around from place to place teaching people. What did they teach? Well, it turns out a lot of different stuff. Some of them taught geometry. Some of them taught um, some of these ideas about the nature of nature. Um, but most of them, whether they taught that or not, also taught persuasive speaking, how to convince people of things. Maybe how to acquire power in your city. Maybe how to be a man of account. Maybe how to be good. Although is good the same thing as being respected in your city? And do you really have any power if you're not good? And isn't it weird that people think different things are good in different cities? Maybe goodness is just 
not a matter of nature, but just the conventions of different places and where you might go. Maybe there is no real nature to goodness and right or wrong. Maybe it's all just custom. Uh, if so, then you have to follow the customs of where you are to be really persuasive where you are, not what's really true. But some, So these kinds of questions start coming up among these people who call themselves or get called sophists, which just basically means wise guy, wise man, um, who are going around trying to get paid to teach people this. And of course, if you're trying to get paid to teach people something, you have to present yourself as impressive and knowing things other people don't. Um, a lot of these guys come to Athens, basically all of them. I mean, they go all over and they stop different places. The most famous is Protagoras, and he comes here for a while. But pretty much all of the sophists spend a lot of time in Athens for the same reason that I think the geometers came here and that Anaxagoras came here, which Athens was becoming a major commercial center. Athens was getting rich. It was getting rich a lot because of trade. There was a lot of manufacturing here. It was an early kind of, you know, something like what Venice or Florence would be. It was an early, uh, it was becoming rich. Because it was becoming rich, there was starting to be a challenge happening here to the way things were everywhere, which is that there were these landed people who were landed for generations and generations. They had these estates. They were noble and good because they always were. And they were the people who ran things. But they were starting to be upstarts. A guy who was manufacturing um, shields for the army and selling them to the army, and he started manufacturing a few shields, and suddenly he had a factory with lots of people manufacturing shields for him, most of them enslaved. And he was super rich, and is he good and noble now? Should he get a vote? Should he be a citizen? What if somebody came from outside and set up shop? Do they get to be a citizen? And his family was kind of uncouth. They didn't speak the way of the people who were hereditarily noble and had been running things. Maybe he could hire someone to teach his kids. If you're a sophist, if you're a guy who has knowledge, and including knowledge of how to live, to sell, and there are a bunch of people who are suddenly well-to-do, but they're not the long-established elite of the society, and they're looking to fit in, and they're looking for what to make of their life, maybe they're a good clientele. That's one of the reasons why there were so many sophists here in Athens. And you see it if you read some of Plato's Island. If you read the Protagoras, there's like a sophist convention uh, starting in the, the home of a really rich uh, merchant, kind of arms manufacturer, really. Yeah. Um, what happens as a result of this? Well, you have these different strands of thought collecting themselves in the same city. You have at least some of them getting associated with, well, challenges to traditional beliefs about the gods already in what the Fusikoi, the natural philosophers, are doing. Challenges to the social order, who's high class and who isn't, inherent in the Sophist project. But then what the Sophists are doing is also is saying, arguing about what's really right or wrong or how you can become persuasive. Maybe how you could persuade things of people of things even if they're false. Or maybe there isn't any real true or false anyway because all that counts is what's persuasive. Certainly that seems to be the case in matters of good and bad because they think different things are good in Sparta as they do in Athens. And you have these kind of subjectivistic ideas that are challenges to the existing order and that maybe suggest there isn't any real order, becoming very prominent. At the same time that there's a lot of new learning and a sense that there's greater depth possible than was possible before and that anybody's thought of 
by this exciting new project of putting mathematics into a system and having definitions, and definitions are really powerful. Maybe we could use definitions better in arguing about what's right and wrong. Prodicus certainly seemed to have thought so. And so you have Plato, a gentleman from a good family, reacting against this, reacting against the sophists, who are his antagonists, reacting against one other fact with a person that we haven't mentioned, but he should have been mentioned by now, that Socrates, his mentor, gets put to death. It's not exactly clear why, but he was saying controversial things. He was questioning people's beliefs. He was doing things that sounded sophist-like, and one of Plato's great projects is to differentiate Socrates from these sophists. He was asking questions about definitions. He was involved in, at least through his friends, as with uh, all these people, in a period of great political foment and real defeat in Athens militarily and we could, or politically, and we could, and great shame. And I think the shame of Athens and the defeats of it that were associated with different developments in the history of philosophy is an important and interesting topic we might talk about. But in all this context, you get Plato. And what does Plato do? He brings the idea of rigor and abstraction from mathematics, the idea that you could have proof systems. Uh, he brings the idea that definitions are important from mathematics and from Socrates who took it up and applies this to everything. Maybe we could have a kind of systematic knowledge of everything, a systematic knowledge of the good. If we understood goodness the way we can understand shapes and numbers, wouldn't that let us order our lives better? Wouldn't that let us understand everything? If we understood the good, we'd know it all. Maybe there's a process we can go through where all this other learning will add up to eventually we'll get the good, and then we'll know everything. And he had a particular theory that put all of this together, a system that he developed and argued for and considered argues against, arguments against. And into this context, you have the other great genius, Aristotle, arguing against Plato's particular system, arguing against certain of the elements of systematicity in it. No, there's not just one giant body of knowledge that you could get and then you know the good and you understand everything. Knowledge doesn't work like that. Knowledge is much more departmental. We have to carve the business of knowing up into different fields that operate by specific rules and there's no knowing at all. But there is common patterns to how knowledge works. Patterns that we could see in mathematics and extract to other things. And there's a great value to this way of knowing. This way of knowing that Thales was on about trying to figure out what everything comes from or what rules govern everything. This pattern that the mathematicians were on about trying to figure out how numbers work. What Plato was doing in trying to grasp the good and the role of goodness in life. There's this project of the mind of understanding things from deep causes. Understanding vast amounts of data but not just taking them as facts to know or memorize, but understanding them as systematic, intelligible, so that you could have insight into how things are and why they're that way. For Aristotle, you could have that based on observation of the world and build up to it. But also, putting aside the question, how do we get to it? There's this tremendous inspiration that this kind of thing is possible. And this kind of thing is human. This is what it's like to be a man. You're someone that can know stuff. You can understand things. You don't have to just build stuff the way fire burns. 
Like, you know, you put some fire on something and it burns it and it doesn't know how it's burning it. You don't have to go through your life like that as some creature of instinct or habit or who just does what's been done before. You can understand the world. You can do the stuff you do for reasons. That's what life's about. That's what being a human being is about. And I think it's that kind of conviction that you have in Plato in a way, but especially in Aristotle, that comes from the merging of these traditions that we talked about, that is central to all of our intellectual heritage, to even what we think it is to be human, to what we want out of life, to what we want in being educated. And I think there are positive and negative sides to the tradition that come out of that. I'll talk a little bit about both tomorrow. But that's what I think of Greek philosophy as about, as this idea that you can find a one and a many in the many. The principle that unites the parade of things that you see. That if you come to understand the world in terms of that, you're a new kind of person, a new kind of thing, a better kind of thing. Passing into that kind of understanding is like waking up from a dream. From the perspective of someone who does understand it, you can only pity someone who doesn't. Like they're looking at a creative shadows on a wall, like they're sleeping, like they're dead. The difference between the life of the understanding, the life that we're uniquely capable of, and a life in which you don't have and don't seek those kinds of insights is like the difference between a plant and an animal. There's something to aspire to. And that thing is knowledge. Knowledge understood as understanding. Knowledge understood as not just having memorized something, but having insight into why things are the way they are. And when you're acting, not just doing what's right, but having insight into why it's the thing to do. I hope we've planted enough flags or seeds of ideas out there or things that are interesting for people to have questions because we don't have much planned to say other than doing this. We might, as people come up, react to some things one another said if we have thoughts, but no, good people are, are uh, <clears throat> queuing up. Zimowit, you want to start us off? Um, I have a non-philosophical question. A what question? A non-philosophical uh, okay. question. So Plato in Greek is Platon with an N. So do you know why it's Plato and not Platon? Um, in almost every other language, they say Platon. Yeah. Um, in, they also say Aristoteles, but we say Aristotle. So, and it is Aristoteles in Greek, but... The French know. say Aristotle. <laughs> so they drop the L, or the lambda, entirely. Yeah, I, don't, I think it's an English convention, probably in English. Um, something that English did with the Latin... Uh, is, is so I can't explain anything beyond that. We there don't are, say Socrates either, right? Yeah. Socrates. There are some other figures that end with yeah. that same way that Plato ends, and some of them are like so. There's this guy Heron of Alexandria, or Hero of Alexandria, but it's the same thing. It's like Plato or Platon. And you the, include the end. The god Apollon, Apollo, we say, but you know I can't explain yeah. what the Anglo-Saxons. Okay. Are. So for some reason we we drop news at the ends of, uh, of yeah. uh, names. Uh, I'm uh, quite fascinated uh, about two things that have some sort of relation, which is the 
human beings transferring from being hunters gatherers into being a, in a civilization due to being able to create crops and make a kingdom out of it and then afterwards there was basically the form like the creation of uh, philosophy as what we know it and I would like to ask you to elaborate on the relation of those two things and how they affect each other. So the, the agricultural revolution and philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Well, Aristotle talks about, um, there's a reason, for example, is it mathematics or does he say? For, I mean, mathematics uh, in Egypt. In Egypt, that you need leisure. You need to advance to a certain point. Like the Scythians are not going to, they have no time to, uh, these are nomadic people um, above the Black Sea, I believe. Uh, they have no time to sit back and ponder the nature of the world or figure out geometry or, you know, how do you um, do the math that makes building a, a pyramid. Um, so you need leisure. Uh, and that's scole is, um, I tell my students that the word school is related to, to leisure uh, in, in Greek. Um, so you need that. And you can't have that if you aren't, if you're not city-fied, and city means you, you civilized, You've, you have a location, a spot that's fixed, it has walls, and, um, and then if, you, if, if, you're, if you're good enough at producing what you need to live, the basic things, as they might put it, um, uh, if you have a leisure where at least some people can do, devote their entire life to, to the mind, certain activities, mathematics, what have you, but eventually philosophy, uh, so that would be certainly one connection between the two without getting into the specifics of uh, hunter-gatherers. But, yeah. An another connection is that um, agriculture requires keeping track of the weather and being able to predict it and knowing when to plant. And so a lot of the kind of astronomical knowledge and, under, you know, um, and interest in natural phenomena um, on a long time rate, like being... A, a, a planting civilization requires you to have a longer time horizon and to be interested in nature and predicting it on that longer time horizon. And so those are two things that go into um, why philosophy is formed or was formed or higher learning, let's call it, to include philosophy and science and mathematics, was formed in um, after, you know, civilizations that had civilized, which meant... I don't mean anything like they become better by civilizing. I mean, like, they got into cities. They, they, they settled down and started this process of farming and bringing the stuff to market and so forth. Um, but lots of places civilized, and something like philosophy only developed in a handful of them, and Greek philosophy only in Greece. And there's one or two other things that I think are relevant. Uh, and, and anyway, it was a long time between the, the forming of cities and... Uh, anything we could recognize as philosophy. Um, I don't think you would ever give a complete answer to why it occurred where it occurred when, but I think another big part of it is trade. So, and um, it occurred always at places. All of these questions started to get, to arise, not in Athens, but on the periphery, in trading colonies that were kind of on the borderline of Greek and Persian culture, and you're getting ideas from different places, and they look at the world differently than we do, and they know some stuff we don't that's useful for our, you know, astronomical calculations, we should learn it, but also 
they think about things differently, but I can't dismiss them totally because I learned something from them. And plus, you know, who am I going to sell my uh, wool to, or, you know, if not them? And so you're having to deal with these people who think about things very differently from you. You're getting exchanges of novel ideas. And that is a, a context that's rife for coming to rethink and, and question things, which is part of what's going on in the birth of philosophy and in higher education. But what's so specific to the kind of Athenian revolution in philosophy both the things leading up to it in, um, and Plato himself is this becoming interested in these questions at a very abstract level and um, this looking for grand systematicity. And my sense is that just there are some geniuses who did that. And these are the kinds of um, conditions that are necessary to give prompt people like that to those questions if there are people like that about. And there were some people like that in the right places. Thanks. Uh, thank you for the introduction to uh, the pre-Socratics and Greek philosophy. I have a question about Aristotle on infinite regresses. Okay. Um, so his prime mover is a solution to the idea that there are no infinite regresses in motion. Um, if I understand um, the version of Aristotle that came in through Aquinas, he also argues that there are no infinite regresses in causation. Um, I, I'd like to hear your perspective or the objectivist perspective on infinite regresses. And if the universe is already, has always existed, um, how do we deal with the infinite regress in causality? So, when we talk about Aristotle and whether infinite regresses in causality, I think we have to also think about the types of causes, because it seems to me that there uh, probably has to be, on his view, an infinite regress of efficient causes. Um, so he's, he's kind of distinguishing, because he thinks time happened infinitely into the past and so forth. So Aristotle's an eternalist. He thinks the universe has been chugging away in cycles forever. Um, why doesn't that bother him from an infinite regress perspective? Uh, well, because he doesn't think the causes are really the things in the past. So Aristotle's conception of causality is not really temporal in that way. Um, we tend to, and this is a kind of legacy of, to some extent, Descartes and largely David Hume, think of causation as like some kind of mapping of the past to the present or the present to the future. But that's not really how we think about causality all the time. Like, this chair is holding me up. It's supporting me. It's causing me not to be on the ground. But that's got nothing to do with the past or the future. I mean, you could say, if this chair went away now, very shortly thereafter, I'd be at the ground, the ground. But that's not what it means to say the chair is holding me up. Like, right now it's holding me up, and so long as it's here, it's holding me up. And there's this relation of supporting that's happening. And that's the primary thing to understand that understanding structural relations, the relation of one thing holding another up. Um, and the, the time is sort of just not important to that. If we want to understand why I fell now, you know, well, the, the, then the answer is going to be, well, the chair was holding you up and the thing that was holding you up went away. And so, but the causation is not only in the change. It's in what's happening at every moment. And... So Aristotle, I think, is primarily interested in causation in, 
the sense of what's supporting or making something be the case. And it's in there that you can't have infinite regresses. And I think also in causation by purpose that you can't have infinite regresses um, because the purpose is the ultimate thing that's making certain things be the case. But in temporal terms, I think he thinks you can. And I think he's probably right about that. Um, because it's not really the past that's causing the future. The thing that you're trying to understand if you're thinking about a temporal change is the change. And the cause then is why the change happened now rather than at some other time. But it's not that the past is what caused the future. Um, and that's how I think about it. As for whether the universe is eternal um, or whether the universe went back forever, let's put it that way. Um, whether it went back forever such that there's always an earlier time or whether there's in some sense something you could call the first time, um, I think is kind of an abstract physics and cosmology question rather than a philosophy question. Mm -hmm. But what is a philosophy point is that there is nothing before the universe. The concept of something before the universe, whether the universe had what you might call a first moment or not, whether it was an infinite series backwards or whether there's some stop to how far back you could go in, in thinking about it, um, the whole idea of something before the universe or causing the universe is incoherent. Beforeness and afterness are concepts about succession within the universe. And it doesn't, if there was something before the universe, all you'd be saying is the universe is bigger than we thought and had this other thing in it too that started before the other thing. And the same question then, we go, what was before that? And at some point, the question of beforeness is a kind of concept that only applies in certain contexts. And it can't apply to everything. Okay. I don't think Aristotle uses the language of infinity when he talks about the, in his proof of the existence of God and when he talks about the eternity of the universe. I think he uses a different language. So I don't know there's, so for the difference between Thomas arguing for the existence of God and Aristotle, um, I don't want to go into Aristotle's argument for the prime mover, but it's not that um, there's a chain of causation. It, there, there can't be an infinite regress. Therefore, it has to have a first cause. And therefore, that, that's a different kind of reasoning. So I don't, I can't swear to it, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't use his, his terminology when he discusses um, infinity, and there can only be a potential infinity, not an actual one. I don't think he uses that kind of language in the metaphysics or physics eight when he uh, argues for the existence of, of God, I think. Anyway. So my question is uh, about Plato. Uh, I read uh, the Republic Book 9 for uh, a course. And no, what did you read? With Republic Book 9. Republic 9, okay. On tyranny. And yeah, and there he, like, when he speaks about types of government, he's mostly concerned, I think, with, if I understood correctly, with the people, with type of person who rules. So uh, the, the uh, democracy is ruled by democratical men, and the, the tyranny is ruled by tyrannous men. And there is uh, the rule of the good, then the rule of the brave, the rule of the rich, and and then he wants a, a, a government that is ruled by a, a philosopher. But then, uh, when I uh, like look study like Greek history and the way uh, the differentiated, like say Athens from uh, Sparta is mostly like how people were elected and 
the type of people were not uh, the same all the time, uh, obviously. So, so what what may cause uh, Plato to focus on the the type of person who rules? Yeah, I think he's trying to understand the causality and the motivations and the causes behind why one form of government or society devolves into changes into another kind. How does a how does an oligarchy uh, like how, how does how does an oligarchy devolve into a democracy? How does a democracy devolve into a tyranny? And because he sees these things happen and knows of it happening in the other kind of city states, and it's like, what's going on here? Is it that uh, at some point the uh, you you know, you give everyone the vote and everybody wants to come in, Joe the farmer, and everybody wants to come in and cause a vote, and what they want is some kind of license and so on, and you give them too much, the mob in effect, too much reign, too much ability to participate, and then things start going to hell, and then they start asking for a strong man, and then some tyrant comes, and I will give you things, and I'll lead the group, and he's wise watching, like, how does this devolve into one system versus another? And I think he's trying to get at that. Um, I also, I don't think the main connection between the democracy and the tyranny and the oligarchy and the the different forms of government is what kind of person rules them. It's not the the relevance of there being a democratic person and a, a, um, a democratic person, an oligarchic person, and a tyrant or a tyrannical person isn't that this is the kind of person who rules each of these countries or exists in each of these countries. I do think he thinks these kinds of systems of government will promote these kinds of people, and these kinds of people will promote this kind of government. But the primary relation that he's interested in isn't that one. You could well have a democracy with some democratically-minded people in power or, you know, whatever. Um, The reason for talking about the people is because the Republic's a book about ethics. It's not a book about societies. The discussion of the societies, the discussion of the cities is there because it's supposed to, by analogy, give you insights into types of people. The whole reason for talking about the types of cities is because he thinks we could understand how the structure of the city manifests justice or injustice. And in doing that, we'll be able to understand how um, analogous structures in a person's soul could manifest justice or injustice. And the different kinds of people who are analogs to the different kinds of people Uh, cities are different kinds of psychologies. In most cities, you'll be able to find some of each kind of person. You'll mostly find, you know, there'll be a preponderance of the people who are like the city, but um, you'll find, you know, and so, and the ultimate upshot of this theory is that you're meant to be able to understand these types of personalities, why some of these types of personalities are better than others, and why it's really important for you to be just, because if you're not, you're going to, devolve in this way to a worse and worse kind of person whose life is going to be worse and worse. And if I could add, the, um, and he, he wants to create the opposite of the just person. I think he wants to make that crystal clear. That's why it gets so much attention in book nine. And the opposite of the just person is the tyrannical person. He may not be a tyrant, but they exist everywhere. But that kind of person is the opposite. And what he wants to show is there is real egoism here of a certain kind that that person is the least happy person you can imagine. It, you, it might be wealthy, it, it, 
they, they have all this political power. But if you could rip open their, their, you know, if you could look into their soul, you would see this is the least kind of person you'd rather. You would rather be Socrates about to be executed than you would uh, to be um, a Hitler or something like that. That's a big part of, of what he's doing because he even has a mathematical equation yes, as the tyrant is, what is it, 729 or something like that? It's no, that, that's, the, that's the, the weird number. There's that, that generation number. Um, but he, he, he says the... There's some uh, power of three. Yeah, there's a power of like seven. Yeah, there, there's 730 times l uh, l more unhappy than the, yeah, um, the difference between them. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, the Republic is one of Plato's great philosophic works, and it's one of the great works uh, in philosophy in general. And it's a, a book about justice. It starts off about, like, what is justice? And some things are thrown around and then analyzed and then thrown out. And uh, Glaucon and Adamantus, who are actually Plato's brothers, uh, they, they posed this question to him. They said, okay, so we're hearing a lot of things in the culture about um, why it's better to be unjust. Now, we don't buy any of that stuff. That doesn't strike us as the right thing, but we'd like to hear you. This is wonderful. You should all read this. But, oh, well, you shouldn't all read this. If you're interested in this kind of thing, it's worth reading. Uh, and they're trying to set up a problem for Socrates that they'd like him to solve. And so they say, so suppose, I don't want to live the unjust life, but I want you to help me out figure out what's wrong with this argument. Yeah, how do I know I'm not a sucker, in effect? Yeah, he said, suppose you had a ring. Kind of like on Lord of the Rings, right? He kind of turns it upside down and he goes invisible, right? I said, what if you had a ring, a magic ring, that you could turn the signet upside down and you become invisible and you could get away with whatever you want? Like, so nobody would uh, know you, you slept with the king's wife or robbed this guy or whatever. And you could just kind of run rampant and get whatever you want. Why wouldn't that be the best kind of life? You could have everything. Just go do what you want, and nobody could punish you. The the, the police, such as they had, archers or something, but uh, aren't going to catch you. Um, no, and, and you could play the part of the fine, upstanding citizen. Uh, you know, fine morals and stuff on the on the outside. So people, you know, think, oh, he's respectful, and they'll give him public office and so on. But you could get away with everything. And why isn't that the best life? Because, I mean, in Greek philosophy, what they're trying to think about is ethics is trying to formulate a conception of what the best life, the most enviable life is, and then how to pursue it. He said, why isn't that the best life? And they say, I'm not saying I want to live like that, but how do you know that's not the best thing? And so the, basically the rest of the Republic, the other nine, <laughs> the, the Republic, or whatever it is, uh, are an answer to that, a convoluted, long answer and many things are going on in the republic but part of it is to get to the point where you can come to see that um the best life is the one in which you have the right harmony between the parts of the soul between reason and your kind of more spirited emotions and your desires and you've got your soul in the right condition so to speak you've got your psyche in the right condition uh, and the when it gets to the point of the tyrant he's in the worst position Instead of having reason be the element that's prom, uh, prom, uh, guiding you and you, you know, kind of squash down your appetites that are kind of running rampant and you kind of get your, your emotions in, in, in line with your reason, or at least they can kind of listen to reason a bit. Um, and what the tyrant has done is he's made his desires 
be the thing that he follows, and the reason is what he kicks out. So the tyrant, what is or he? Or makes it a slave. Makes it a slave. Yeah. And what How is the like desire, master? <laughs> and what is what does the tyrant have to do? It's like taking you know, Saddam Hussein. What does the tyrant do with the good and the noble? Well, he has to kick them out because they're the ones that are going to say, "Look, you're doing the wrong thing," and they're going to criticize him. Does the tyrant have any friends? No. The people around him are a bunch of sycophants who just as soon slit his throat and take power if they could and as soon as they get the moment. What would happen if the tyrant who has power, you are all my slaves, suppose. I tell you what to do. Suppose if he took you out of your little castle and put you on an island with all you people and I don't know how the power of the state behind me. What's going to happen to me? You're going to get ripped to pieces. You know, it's the you're... you're at the edge, you're at a fine line of, of you know, it's, it's that noose with, you know, the, what's the, what is it, the, the leash is a noose with you know, two, yeah, with yeah. a noose at each end, right? And, even, and, and his yeah. soul, it, and his soul is in the worst possible condition. So the idea is, what you are trying to show is, this is the best possible life. It's the worst possible psychology because it's the worst possible condition of your soul, and you're going to be completely miserable. And, and then, and then said, oh, even if you remain in power, Quote power. Yes. No one kills you and takes you out. What are you doing with your power? What is it getting you? You've made yourself a slave to this base desire to lord it over people. And you're having to spend all your time and all your thought on all your work keeping up your ability to lord it over people. For what? To keep yourself lording over people and you don't get anything out of it and you're destroyed by it. So it's, it's and you might think, well, this ring situation is ridiculous, no one can have it, why do we need that? But the purpose of that example in there is to make, to separate out defenses of justice that are based on justice's reputation from defenses of being a just person itself, not just for the reputation. Because if the defense of being just, of not being like a tyrant, is just people will notice, then say, Galcanodimantis, Really what you're saying is, be really good at it. If you're able to get away with it, you should do it. Uh, I want to know that you shouldn't do it even if you think you're able to get away with it because this is not the right way to be. And so it's um, brilliant, interesting, intricate discussion of this question that gets into so many other questions. And there are some things in it that I think are deeply right and true. Oh, yeah. A lot in it that I think is profoundly wrong and evil. But almost all of it's really interesting. And it's laudable that... Uh, what part of what Plato is doing is he's rejecting two views of justice. Justice is a gift from the gods. I'll be talking about that in my what, or the justice lecture. <laughs> and uh, Or that justice is a human construct. It's a, an agreement. It's the constitution or something like that. He's making it, and it starts with Socrates, of course. He's making it a, a characteristic of a human soul. And that is really important. And the discussion of... Uh, the connection, the merging of one's happiness and uh, one's moral character is really excellent. It goes off the rails when he thinks he needs more than that and he needs these metaphysical entities that transcend nature and, and things. And so there's real problems and that, that, that affects his ethics in, in, in serious ways. But there's uh, something he's doing that's, that's important and right. And, and, what, and what was that, po that poem that uh, Aristotle... Uh, or him, or something that Aristotle wrote. I'm quoting that tomorrow. So it's, 
Don't scoop, Robert, then. <laughs> okay, I, you're, I'll let you. No, no, I didn't know what he would have thought. But, I, um, well, but it was the connection between that. By, the, his, by, his, uh, by his arguments and his life, he showed that men become just and happy at the same time. Yeah. And now um, no one can understand. You know, there's no one left like that. And he's a man who the wicked may not properly praise. Yeah. yeah. Which is a good compliment. It is. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah, that was still your question. <laughs> Sorry. Don't um, get us started. Uh, well. So, Greg, you talked a little bit about the special in the role mathematics played for Plato as a sort of inspiration, but also maybe as an example of like, this is the proper way to reason. Uh -huh. For Rand as well, mathematics played a, a special role, and she thought of it as something that, that's unique, uniquely related to conceptual knowledge. But her, for her, it seems to be very, her, her evaluation seems to be based on very different facts than, or, or of a very different nature than Plato's. Could you speak to that and maybe say how Aristotle fits into that? Well, let me say what the thing is about math that impressed Aristotle and I think has impressed the whole tradition of thought. There's a version of this in Plato, but I think it's less healthy and uh, there's more things wrong with it. But in Aristotle, what... What mathematics represents, and I don't think people think about it this way anymore, but they did think about it this way through most of human his, most of intellectual history, is mathematics represents deep, certain causal understanding. The paradigm of really knowing something, knowing it all the way down and knowing it deeply, both being sure of it, being sure it would apply everywhere all the time, but not just being sure it would apply everywhere all the time, understanding why it has to apply everywhere all the time. The one key example of this in human history that comes back to time and time again in discussions of knowledge, starting with Aristotle, is that a triangle has interior angles equal to two right angles. That is an angle, interior angle sum of 180 degrees. There's a proof of that in Euclid. Euclid was written a little after Aristotle, but the proof was around, and so you can go read it in Euclid to get the idea of what it is. But the, what we're doing when we understand this is taken by Plato and Aristotle especially to be a model of knowing. And a science is when you can take facts that you might have known that they were true before you had the science, but now you could understand, get to the bottom of these facts in the way that we got to the bottom of this fact about triangles. You have a system where there are definitions of things and axioms and you could lay everything out going back from the axioms to explain why this thing has to be the way it is. And mathematics, Euclid, or Euclidean style geometry in particular, is the shining example of, in intellectual history of this kind of intellectual achievement. And that's what's so captivating about it for Aristotle, but I think also for the whole trilogy, we find the same 2R example, as it's called, two rights example discussed in John Locke and George Barclay and so forth. It's like through the whole tradition, this special thing that you have when you get Euclid. And there is something special, like, whoa, I see why that has to be the case and why it's gotta be the case everywhere. And there's no question about it. And there's this kind of insight you can get. And the idea is like that thing that you have about 2R in geometry 
is a kind of paradigm of what the human mind is capable of. Can we get this in ethics? Can we get it in physics? Can we get it about everything? Maybe you can get it about why things move and what they're made of. And that's the, that's the thing. That's the, what's inspiring about geometry and what's seen as a model of it. And whether that whole way of thinking about natural science or ethics is right-headed or wrong-headed or right-headed in one way but wrong-headed in another, that's, I think, um, a deep question for philosophy of math and for epistemology that I don't think philosophers of math or epistemologists asked. I think they all kind of gave up on it around the time of Hume, and no one's thought about it since. But it really needs thinking about. Hey, thanks for taking my question. I was wondering if you could give some recommendations of ancient Greek philosophy texts which give a deeper or broader understanding to some of their narrative elements, specifically in Rand's fiction. So as an example, thinking about Anthem, I think reading um, Allegory of the Cave gives quite some interesting read across. Do you have some other examples or recommendations for sort of Greek texts to read to get a deeper understanding of Rand? Thanks. I don't know if it give you a deeper understanding. I think there's a lot of value in Aristotle's poetics, uh, that's for sure. Um, yeah, the allegory of the cave with Anthem. Yeah, I'm, do you have anything else? I think you're not going to read one text just to have a kind of one-way illuminating relationship with the other, but, but rather you'll compare and, and get insights to both. Um, so the question is like, what in Greek philosophy is read interestingly or profitably with uh, Ayn Rand um, for comparison and contrast? Um, well, someone mentioned Book Nine of the Republic. The, the whole descent of the characters in the Republic, I think, is an interesting thing to read in connection with Rand's accounts of virtue. Um, and you think of like the democratic man and the oligarchic man, and who are these people, and what's wrong with them, and how does Plato's account relate to Aristotle's? Um, other things in um, Aristotle's account of pride, um, Megalopsukia, uh, in Nicomachean Ethics, Book Four, Chapter Three. I think is brilliant and exciting and interesting and interestingly read in comparison with Rand's accounts of her characters, um, mostly as a negative counterexample or foil example. Um, Plato's views of love compared to Rand's um, and compared to Aristotle's kind of friendship, but particularly compared to Rand's, I think are, are really interesting. Um, Nicomachean Ethics, book eight and nine. Are on friendship. That's, that's yeah. Aristotle on friendship. Um, and for Plato on Love, um, the Symposium especially, and the Phaedrus. Um, I think the Stoics, um, for an early example of a soul-killing kind of philosophy, and you could think of what Dominique is trying to do in the Fountainhead as sort of be a Stoic, uh, when she's trying to purposely withdraw from the world. Um, I think the Epicureans and to some extent the Stoics, um, the Epicurus letter to Benoichias is the best thing on this, as um, an example of what Rand calls the Nirvana premise. Um, you could also read some Hindu texts on that, but since we're sticking with the Greeks, uh, the Nirvana premise, this idea that the greatest thing to aim at is the cessation of pain. And um, there are a lot of Hellenistic texts that I think are in one way or another on that premise, but Epicurus's letter to Benoichias is a good, like, best case scenario for that kind of thinking, I think, and give some of the best arguments for it. And, and two, two more things. I mean, one, is it Nicomachean Ethics Book 9, 9, where he talks about self-love? Mm. Uh, that's an interesting passage because in, in 
yes, Nicomachean Ethics, Book Nine. That's on friendship. Uh, it's uh, nine. It's nine, eight, nine eight is self love. Nine nine is oh, so it's nine is, eight. Okay. Is self sufficient? Yeah, nine four and nine eight. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he talks about this issue of self love, and he's trying to grapple with this issue because he says people are commonly um, um, uh, rebuked for being a self lover. You don't want to be a self lover, right? Fill out on. Yeah. Uh, and they just put Phil in front of everything, don't they? Um, but you're a self-lover. And he, he asked himself, well, there's a sense in which you shouldn't be, there's, there's something to untangle there, because there's a sense in which you should be a lover of self. You have to have the right, but you have to have the right conception of what yourself is. Yourself is your reason, you're, and you're, you want the best for your, yourself, and you seek the best, the noblest for yourself. So in one way, you should be all in on being a self-lover. And, but he said, I think partly what gets packaged in there is people think of the self-lover as the guy who just gratifies his base desires or whatever. And, and they, they, both of these sort of get mushed together uh, in terms of the... But that's an interesting discussion there. It's not the same as Ayn Rand, but it's, it's a very interesting discussion. And if you want to look at something else that is, uh, again, similar means not the same, so I'll stop saying not the same, uh, but similar... Um, uh, okay, there's a similarity. Um, between uh, the Epicureans' defense of the senses and the validity of sense perception and the unerring nature of the senses against skeptical attacks, Epicurus and Lucretius, a, kind of a later sort of follower in effect, um, have a good argument for that. Uh, and it's similar in many respects to the objectivist position and why you have to defend the unerrancy of the senses and why you have to defend that like the city wall. And if you give that up, you give up all uh, knowledge and it's all lost. Everything is lost. Uh, and he has a good argument for it. Um, now his physical account for how, because he has an account for like, why do you, why does the octagonal tower in the distance look round? Perceptual error, right? There's an illusion. Uh, and you see your senses are deceive you and you can't base anything on the senses. So and he has an account for like how you explain that. That's what octagonal towers look like at a distance. And so he has a view about you know how the, the, the films of atoms that are coming off things get buffeted and sort of eroded down by the time. Okay, that's not really true, but uh, it's an ingenious sort of account for how to explain um, uh, different kinds of illusions and, and so on. It's interesting. Yeah. And if we get into uh, epistemology and metaphysics, um, there are a lot of things in Aristotle and some in the Stoics and Epicureans, some in Plato. Um, I, since you said about the novels, I, we were focused more on ethical things at first, but there's a lot. Also in Epicurus, there's a fantastic argument about free will. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just a lot of good stuff, but it, it's too much to yeah, yeah. name it all. We'd need more specific prompts. Thanks. We have to be, we should be quick with yeah. this. I, I wanted to, con to discuss productivity between the Greek, uh, ancient Greek and the modern from Lacan to, uh, if that is a central difference that uh, to discuss what what's the word we were saying productivity production to be uh -huh. that Locke uh, conceptualized as modifying nature and that uh, Rand has as a central uh, uh, value uh, to the to Greek uh, basically Aristotle why is is that something he didn't develop the way Locke did although he had the idea of happiness and he studied nature and, and he didn't really connect being productive and, and, and producing as, uh, as creating happiness. 
Well, I just wanted to bring that whole subject up. A lot of my talk tomorrow is going to be about that, as it happens. Um, but I think it's worse than that he just didn't connect. Um, if you're producing something, that's servile. It's low. I mean, it's good if you did something smart to produce it, and that's good. But still, it's, it's not free. It's not something you'd do if you were at leisure. You, you produce things because you need them. And, and to do something because you need to do it, there's something base and slave-like about that. Um, I mean, maybe it's, it's uh, damn impressive how you did it. Um, you know, Reardon Metal is a nice piece of smelting. Uh, there's something smart and intelligent about how you did it. I think that's pretty but harsh. But you did it for serving a bodily need. I mean, wouldn't it be better if we didn't have these needs that we have to serve? And, and the people who do that, think about what it does to your mind to focus on how can I earn a dollar at this and how can I make something? And there's, there's a kind of, um, I think a lot of aristocratic class prejudice is thinking about this, but more than that, there's a kind of idea that if an act is productive, then it's for the sake of something external to itself. That's what it means for it to be productive. You're, you're making a product and you're doing it to make the product. But that means the end of that action is outside of itself. But if the end of that action is outside of itself, the action is less good than its end and isn't good in itself. And life should be about activities that are good in themselves whenever that's possible. And so there must be like intrinsic things that are worth doing just because they're worth doing, not because of any output from them. And if there are things like that, and surely there are, like understanding math, I mean, think about how great it is when you understand that 3R thing. Like, that doesn't put any bread on the table. And all the stuff that does put bread on the table must be for the sake of something else that doesn't and that's better than it. And the thing that doesn't and that's better than it turns out to be the kind of understanding you could have in mathematics and elsewhere. And like, imagine God. God can't be like making stuff to make it and admire it. Like he doesn't need anything. Why would he do that? What could he be doing? Only something that's valuable and worthwhile to do in itself apart from any result of it. What could there be like that other than understanding things, other than thinking for itself? So God would have to be like a mind that thinks about things without doing anything. What could he think about? Well, whatever is best, what's best him? And that's how you get like God is a mind that just thinks itself all day. Um, and this is all connected to a view of value that thinks that the kind of, for the sake of relations between one value and another, um, are such that the best things have to serve no purpose. <laughs> and anything that does serve a purpose, it still might be very good, but it's not best. That's a mark against it. If it gets its goodness from a service, it, from something it does. Anything that's productive is like that, and therefore is at best, second best. He does think, I mean, techne is an intellectual virtue. So he would admire uh, the ability that enabled Sophocles to write a play. And I think he would have the same view of someone who could build a ship and knew how to do it well. Um, and there, I don't know that there was anything like reared metal um, I don't know that he would have, you know, if you actually asked him about the intellectual process that produced it, would he, he wouldn't have called it. Um... Well, but there were people who were making fortunes by new business practices and 
Plato certainly was damning them. Oh, Plato and, certainly. Um, the the Benausoi, the the workmen that Aristotle puts down, um, he also think got rich by their work. So it's not just manual labor. There's something about the emerging middle class that. But I don't think the Benausoi for these are the vulgar workmen or whatever. They don't have technate. Well, not, not as he described. They might have some. Anyway, I think we're over, I yeah, know, we're over time. But we're over time. When we there are some technique like you shouldn't learn if you're free because they're only suitable for slaves, yeah, well, and some true. you should. So, which ones do they have? And whatever. Okay, <laughs> we'll argue this all out more later. Oh, I, can I have one last? I wanted to describe. I don't know if you noticed the catering, the napkin here, Depnosophisterion. Uh, there was a title of a work by Athenaeus called Depnosophisteries, and it means the wise men at dinner. And uh, so there you go. You won't be dining with all of us, but <laughs> so, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. I like the owl too. And it's on the right Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einran.org.